Welcome to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant-based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come. Good afternoon, good morning, or even good evening, wherever you're tuning in from around the world. Thank you for being here. Before we get started, as usual, a quick rundown of who the future of protein production is. We are a digital platform connecting companies right along the alternative proteins value chain, from research at one end to retail at the other, and everything in between. We achieve this primarily via content such as daily news, weekly newsletters, monthly webinars, podcasts, our quarterly B2B magazine, Protein Production Technology International, and even live and virtual conferences and exhibitions. And on that note, we met face-to-face recently in the Netherlands with a hugely successful Future of Protein Production Live, and I'm pleased to say that we'll be back at Rye Amsterdam on the 23rd and 24th of October 2024. Before that, though, we'll be holding the Future of Protein Production Chicago on the 15th and 16th of May at McCormick Place, so do keep an eye on details for that on all of our channels. Now, on to today's discussion. Unleashing the nutritional potential of plant-based proteins. As I'm sure we'll all agree, in recent years there has been a big shift in the way people perceive and consume plant-based proteins in their diets. We have seen this most significantly in meat and dairy, but other fast-growing categories also include sports nutrition and snacking foods. The early days of sports nutrition predominantly featured animal-derived proteins such as whey and casein as the primary choice for athletes and fitness enthusiasts. However, as the health and environmental benefits of plant-based diets have become more widely recognized, plant-based proteins have started to gain traction. One of the primary factors driving the adoption of plant-based proteins in sports nutrition is their ability to provide essential amino acids necessary for muscle recovery and growth. Beyond this, plant-based proteins are often easier on the digestive system and less likely to cause allergic reactions compared to their animal-derived counterparts. This makes them a more inclusive option for athletes with dietary restrictions or sensitivities. The development of plant-based protein powders, bars, and supplements that mimic the taste and texture of traditional dairy and meat-based products has also contributed to their popularity. Products such as pea protein isolates, hemp protein, and brown rice protein have become staples in the diets of many athletes and fitness enthusiasts, and companies continue to innovate to improve their taste and nutritional profile. As a result, more people into fitness and health are choosing plant-based proteins to meet their performance and recovery needs. Sustainability, too, continues to be a significant driver. Consumers are increasingly concerned about the environmental impacts of their food choices, and plant-based proteins require fewer resources, emit fewer greenhouse gases, and have a lower ecological footprint compared to traditional animal-derived proteins. This aligns with the values of many people who want to make choices that are both good for their bodies and for the planet. As we will touch on today, plant-based proteins have also made their way into the snacking food category. This trend can be attributed to the rise of the flexitarian and vegan diets and the increasing demand for convenient on-the-go snacks that provide both nutrition and satiety. Snacking companies have responded to this by introducing a variety of plant-based protein snacks. These range from protein bars and crisps made from ingredients such as lentils, chickpeas and quinoa to nut butter spreads that offer a protein boost. Such snacks appeal to consumers who want to maintain their protein intake while enjoying the convenience of portable and tasty options. However, Despite the huge growth of plant-based proteins in sports nutrition and snacking, challenges remain. Taste, texture, 
and the ability to match the nutritional profile of animal-derived proteins are still areas of development. Additionally, there's an ongoing debate about the overall healthiness of some highly processed plant-based products, which some claim can contain additives and fillers. Naturally, we will focus on this topic today. Now, as I'm sure we'll find out in the next hour or so, the future of plant-based proteins in these categories is likely to involve further innovation, with companies striving to create products that are not only nutritious and sustainable, but also delicious and cost-effective. Now, on to the main event. First, we will have a very short presentation from Carlos Fraguela. He's the Business Development Manager of Plant-Based Proteins, EMEA, and Brittany Van Buskirk, Plant-Based Proteins Application Lead, both from Ingredion, the sponsor of today's show. Um, once we get going with the discussion after that, feel free to pose any questions to our panelists via the Q&A box. It would be great if you could provide your name and the company that you're from, and I will do my best to get to some of them at the end or during today's broadcast. For now, though, I'm going to hand over to Brittany and Carlos. It's over to you guys. Before we jump right into it, I would like to introduce Ingredients for those who don't know us. Ingredient is a global ingredient supplier with headquarters in Chicago. We have approximately 12,000 employees worldwide, and we serve customers in approximately 120 countries in 60 diverse market segments. And just to give you an idea, in 2022, 70% uh, of new product launches contained at least one of our ingredients. One of our ingredients being starches, plant-based proteins, thickeners, high-intensity sweeteners. And this, we achieve it thanks to the close collaboration that we have with our customers in our innovation center, or as we call them in Ingredient Idea Lab, where we have 32 globally, with the backup of, of our expertise of R&D scientists, which we have approximately 500. So that's to give you just an idea of uh, Ingredient, our global footprint. But now let's talk about plant-based. So plant-based is no longer a trend, it's a market, and it's a market that is much more established than a few years ago. It's not being driven by vegans or vegetarians. It's actually dri being driven by the flexitarians. And we see that they are the ones that are driving the volume and the innovation. And if we see a study done by Innova last year where they asked uh, consumers why would they consider or not uh, plant-based alternatives, we see that still flexitarians are looking for healthier and natural products. And because it's a much more established market, now they're really questioning how nutritious are these products. So... If we now look into sports nutrition and snacks, these are the numbers when it comes to product launches with high with source of or high in protein claim between 2018 and 2022. We see that sports nutrition is the largest category for uh, using this claim. Then we have uh, cereals and snacks as the fastest growing category. And then most of the times the, high, the protein claim will be coupled together with sugar reduced or no artificial ingredients which links back to the study done by Innova, where consumers are now looking for uh, nutritious options uh, in their uh, in the products. So if we now go a little bit more into protein specifically, what do we see on the market and how are we communicating and trying to achieve the best in protein nutrition when it comes to plant-based? So there are two different approaches. One approach is much more straightforward, where um, we communicate on the amount of protein that the consumer will get per serving. So here we have two examples. One is an extruded snack where the consumer will get 10 grams of protein. And another one is a hazelnut uh, butter spread where there's 23% of protein. Usually it's either using one ingredient or sometimes multiple plant-based uh, protein sources, but there's no communication around around this and the, the, but the, the quality of the protein. 
So what we see now, like the, the, the next or the trend that we see is that some brands are, are deciding to communicate much more and to use uh, different plant-based protein sources to provide that best nutrition to, to consumers. And here we have three examples. So we will start with Heal uh, back in 2021 where they launched their complete uh, protein. And here they talk about high quality ingredients using hemp bean pea protein, and then go even a step further to talk about the grams of essential amino acid that the consumer will get, and also branched-chain amino acid. Then we move so, uh, we move into uh, a cookie application. So we have Lenny and Larry's, where the, with the complete cookie, where they're using a, a blend of different protein sources. So wheat gluten, pea protein, rice protein together with fiber. And finally, we have a launch recently in the U.S., Ekpe. And uh, I really like this example because this is bread in many countries around the around the world. It's consumed daily, and it's a great way to to get the nutrients uh, needed. And here, what they are communicating is that each slice of bread provides 10 grams of protein, but they also go the step uh, further to talk about the nine essential amino acids that the consumer will get in order to have a healthy lifestyle. So we see now to achieve the best protein um, nutrition. It's by using different plant-based uh, sources. And then if we look into our portfolio, what ingredients can offer, we have when it comes to pulse ingredients, pulse flowers, pulse concentrates, which have been deflavored and they're easy to use in applications. And then we have the pea protein isolates with above 80% protein, which can uh, help you achieve that uh, high level of protein. But not just protein in our portfolio, we have the full toolbox. So we have starch-based texturizers where uh, it helps you to get the right texture in your product. We have specialty sweeteners where you can reduce sugar and um, not lose um, the sweetness quality that you're looking for. We also have flavor modifiers to, to improve the sweetness quality, but also to reduce any bitter or off notes. And finally, we have food systems where we pick different ingredients from our portfolio, but also ingredients from independent uh, global suppliers. But do not take my word for it. I will not hand it over to Brittany where she will explain about the challenges and advices that we give when it comes to developing plant-based, uh, developing sports nutrition and snack products with plant-based proteins. Over to you, Brittany. Thanks, Carlos. So if I was to poll this audience right now and ask you, what are the challenges in formulating plant-based products? I expect I would get a whole slew of answers. Um, I'm sure some of you would be speaking toward what the consumers are asking for. So looking for healthy products to their bodies, but also healthy for the planet. And then I'm sure some of you will also speak towards your own manufacturing challenges. How can you use your existing equipment in order to process these plant-based ingredients? Or how can you achieve the same shelf life of the products you're historically used to? It's important not only to choose the right ingredients, but also choosing the right suppliers to partner with in order to help accelerate bringing your products to the shelf. So today, we're going to talk about how you can utilize ingredients portfolio of pulse proteins in order to help bring your products to the market. Through working with Ingredion, you're getting not only access to our ingredients, but also our team of experts around the globe and locally within your region in order to help bring these products to shelf. After all, it takes not just the formulation know-how, but the nutritional know-how, the culinary expertise in order to bring your products to shelf. Today, we'll be focusing in on four application areas. 
we'll be speaking about ready-to-mix beverages, ready-to-drink beverages, cold-pressed bars, and better-for-you snacking. We'll talk about the challenges and solutions in order to bring these products to life. So when we speak about these products, we need to start with that foundation of nutrition in order to create a winning product. So you need to be clear on if you are working to produce a product based on grams of protein or grams of complete protein. So if you are working to achieve a certain Nutri-Score, you are focusing in on grams of protein in which the protein in your um, product will help to elevate your Nutri-Score. Versus if you're looking to produce a product that focuses in on complete protein, you're focusing in on PDCAS. PDCAS is Protein Digestibility Corrected Amino Acid Score. And we look at working with ingredients such as animal sources. So whether that's milk protein concentrate, casein, um, these all achieve a PDCAS of one. Soy also achieves a PDCAS of one. But when you're looking to formulate with other plant protein sources, such as pulses or nuts or oats, these do not achieve a PDCAS of one. And so that's where you need to look at blending proteins together in order to help elevate that PDCAS score. So we're going to speak very briefly about blending proteins together. In this um, demonstration, we will have uh, protein A. Protein A has uh, 30% of its first limiting amino acid. So we are not able to have that PDCAS of 1 with protein A because of that first limiting amino acid shown in red. So what we then do is we scan the market to understand, okay, what is another protein that can be blended with protein A and to make up that deficient limiting amino acid? So we found protein B. So we blend protein A with protein B in order to create a complementary protein blend that ideally gets you to a PDCAS of 1 or gets you significantly closer to that. A great example of this is blending pea and rice together in order to achieve that PDCAS of 1. So if we want to bring this example to life, um, let's focus in on ready-to-mix beverages. So if you came to me and said, Brittany, I'd like to develop a ready-to-mix beverage, the first question I'd ask you is, are you looking to achieve that grams of protein or that grams of complete protein? And that will help us determine, are we exclusively working with um, ingredients by Tessin's pea protein isolate, or are we working to blend a few together? So the great thing about by Tessin's pea protein isolate is that it helps you overcome many of the challenges that you would, may run into in this application area. So some of these challenges include dispersibility. So when you're shaking the bottle, you want it, the protein to go into solution quickly. Foaming, when you're shaking that, you don't want to just get a mouthful of foam right away. You want to get that product. And so really navigating those challenges and um, working with the Vitessence Pea Protein Isolate helps you overcome them. One of the key challenges is also taste. So pulses can bring along um, green, bitter, pulsy notes. But by working with the Pure Circle Natural Flavor line, it helps to um, mask or reduce some of these off notes and perhaps enhance other desirable notes. So another application area that we can speak towards is ready-to-drink beverages. So, so these include both high protein levels, 20 to 30 grams of protein, 
or the lower protein levels such as plant-based milks around 80 grams of protein. We're seeing more and more of those higher protein levels are where um, targeting those essential amino acids is becoming more important. So in this application area, you're looking to retrieve that creamy, smooth mouthfeel, but also ensuring that when you reach those elevated protein levels, that you can process it through your manufacturing equipment. Digestin's pea protein isolate gives you that ease of processing while also giving you that smooth, creamy mouthfeel. And then again, if you're working with the pure circle line of natural flavors, and it helps to mask some of those off notes, but interestingly, it also helps to enhance some flavor notes such as vanilla or chocolate, depending on the natural flavor that you work with. So another application area, especially as we think about the um, acceleration of on-the-go snacking is bars. So bars have three different kind of subcategories within there. There's the particulate type bar, the baked bar, and the dough extruded type bar. You can achieve the addition of protein in a variety of different ways. If you start with the, um, the, the larger substance of the bar, kind of the dough in the extruded bar or the baked bar, really working with Vitessin's pea protein isolate gives you a stable texture through shelf life, which is one of the most important um, areas to focus on is ensuring that if you eat that bar at month one or month nine, that you're experiencing the same. So starting that with that foundation is key. If you're looking to develop gluten-free or wheat flour replacement, working with the line of Homecraft Prista flours, so pea, lentil, or fava, gives you the ability to one-for-one one replace those uh, flowers in this type of application. And then if you're looking to develop a um, coated bar or have that um, compound coating base, you can actually one-for-one one replace non-fat dry milk with the Homecraft Prista flowers in order to create that um, compound coating. So lastly, talking about better for you snacking. This encompasses a breadth of products, whether that is um, extruded puffs or crackers or even all the way to cereals. As we heard from Carlos, cereals and snacks are the fastest growing category for protein claims. In this application area, you can fortify with either the Vitestin's pea protein isolate or our protein concentrates. If you're fortified with the isolate, you get more of a firmer product. And if you fortify with the concentrates, you can get more of that expanded crispier product. And in this type of application area, if you're really looking to create, again, those gluten-free products, those wheat flour replacement, you can use the Homecraft Pristine Pea Flowers in order to deliver differentiated textures. So whether you choose to work with the lentil or the pea or the fava, you can get unique textures that really help to expand your consumer's eating experience. So when I think about the future of plant-based formulations, I absolutely envision the need for strong partnerships and collaborations. These strong partnerships help us to identify and overcome obstacles. And working with Ingredients global team of experts, you get that global knowledge, but you also have that local team perspective with the team that's right there on site in your region. You get access to a wealth of resources, whether that's from our colonology team or our formulation experts or our nutrition experts. They can help you really deliver that product to the market as possible and help you achieve your.
Thank you very much, Carlos and Brittany, for that and for laying the foundation of today's discussion. Um, we're now going to say goodbye to Carlos, but Brittany, you'll be staying with us. Um, let's bring on our other panellists. Uh, ladies first. Hopefully we have Rebecca. There she is. Hello, Rebecca. Could you tell us about Huel and what your role is at the company? Sure. Hi. Yeah, so I'm Senior Nutrition Manager for Huel, a nutritionally complete food company that creates plant-based, convenient foods. So... For those of you that don't know Huel, so most of our products are in powdered form that you reconstitute with water or ready-to-drink formats, bar formats. Main ingredients include oats, flaxseed, pea, brown rice proteins. And the idea behind Huel that we will probably go into as, as we further the conversation is that when you're in a hurry or you're out of home, people tend to buy foods that may be nutritionally poor or particularly high in fat, sugar, a salt and because your products contain a balance of 26 essential vitamins, minerals and essential fats, fiber, protein, it means that it's a perfect meal option if you're away from the kitchen or if you're time poor. So my role at Shul involves working with our new product development team to formulate and create the products to ensure that they include all the nutrients at all the correct levels. I manage a lot of research trials that we do at Chul to learn as much as we can about our product. Uh, I work with marketing claims, review for, you know, sometimes I'm not the most um, most loved person by our marketing team going through with the red pen, but there we are. So yeah, lots going on at a, a growing company like Chul. Thank you very much for that. And now, Nick, what's the focus of Nutrition Integrated and, and how did you end up in this particular part of the sector? Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Nick. Um, thanks for the question. Thanks for the uh, invite. Um, Nutrition Integrated, um, I'm founder of, it's a basically data and insights company focused on what we would describe as active nutrition, um, which I think is the world that people see today as sports nutrition, more inclusive to more people. Um, I think it's generally summarizing more proactive consumers who are looking to become healthier, uh, both from an exercise point of view in terms of regular exercise, but also nutritional decisions or making better decisions more often on a daily basis. Um, so in terms of our data and insight, we collect lots of product information from uh, North America and Europe um, with a particular expertise in plant protein, actually, through the formats we'll discuss today, so powders, bars, drinks, um, and bakery and into other areas. Um, my background is 12 years into the industry, really, so um, very much close to how it's evolved. It's like a PhD thesis to us as a company, really. Um, understanding what what's going on, uh, and and we love it. So um, yeah, we've always got a lot to say about about the market as it's evolving. Brilliant. Now, well, welcome to both of you. So let's set the scene with a quick discussion uh, about where we are. We often talk on this platform about plant based meat, fish, and dairy, but uh, as we've already seen, there are other rapidly growing sectors utilizing these alternative protein sources. Um, how have our panelists seen um, the sports nutrition and healthy snacks categories evolve over the past few years? Nick, I guess that's probably a question for you as you can uh, look across companies you know what have been the main drivers in your opinion yeah i'll try to keep it succinct because it's a pretty decent question to start um let's start with sports nutrition um i think people would have uh the stereotype of sort of um muscle um sort of a, a, a dark heartland of uh people moving iron in the gym trying to get bigger and stronger and to be honest that is the original heartland of sports nutrition and those consumers still exist I think essentially over time, what you've seen is that industry become more inclusive to more consumers who exercise. More people are interested in the benefits of exercise and, and nutrition in combination with that uh, to achieve their fitness goals. So effectively, 
you're trying to target more people. You've seen an expansion of products into different formats using different ingredients as it tries to become more inclusive keyword and more accessible keyword. Um, various factors contribute to um, accessibility um, and inclusivity, of course, and hence actually plant is one of them. Um, so I'd say that's the biggest macro trend of sports becoming more relevant to more people. It doesn't mean the hardcore people have gone away, by the way. They're still there, high weight and frequency of purchase, so we shouldn't ever forget them. There is all now uh, a broader group of people. Um, healthy snacking, wow. Um, I think people are just a little bit more cognizant of being a little bit healthier um, and the decisions they make. Within that, I do love to talk about protein bars. Um, originally, actually, the heartland of sports nutrition, but that's kind of been one of the biggest industry pivots as protein bars almost dissociates from sports nutrition per se, and protein bars becomes really interesting for people to meet some of their health goals, but still feel like they're taking on something quite tasty, indulgent, and still chocolate-like as well. Um, so that would be a, a hope, a reasonably succinct way to to um, to explain it. And I will just you know finish on the plant really quite conducive to both of those trends. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is probably a question for Brittany. I mean, how how is the rate of innovation accre- increasing um, within these product groups? Um, so I see this continuous feedback loop within the development and innovation area. So really, you start with the consumer. What does the consumer need? And really, we get this through varieties of different uh, pieces of research, and that drives ingredient innovation. So you need that complete feedback loop in order to drive innovation forward within the space. And I think you go to any uh, webinar, any conference, and you can see that plant-based is the top uh, area that is being talked about. So that's accelerating innovation from both the plant source that's being offered, but also the way that that plant source comes to availability. Sure. So it's certainly um, accelerating as fast as I mean, Nick, of the products that you're seeing in your um, research, what claims are being made about the nutritional characteristics of some of those products? Um, Well, I guess in simple terms, I think for certain people in Europe, they would know that sort of the health claims is pretty well um, sort of guided anyway. So um, anything with protein is going to try and talk about um, its importance towards health and particularly muscle mass um, and maintenance of within sports nutrition and those products, powders specifically. I think what we are seeing, though, interestingly, in the new products that we've tracked launched over the last 12 months um, is that, one, there's an increased rate of products launching with plant-based as a claim. Um, But similarly, there's definitely more health-supporting connotations that it seems to pair up with, actually. So plant-based proteins making claims towards energy, um, also claims around related gut health. Um, They're interesting to add other adjacent ingredients like superfoods, quote-unquote, and so on. so it seems to be both a ingredient that is enabling more of a health platform. You will be healthier for consumption rather than a performance claim. But it also seems to have an easy win by combining with other ingredients that people would think that feels nice and part of a, let's say, more natural type product. Um, so they're the sort of key constructs of it, I think, um, within the products. And that's actually pretty ubiquitous across powders, bars, and drinks, actually. Um, but bars and drinks themselves being more mainstream categories than powder in itself. Um, but that depends on the lens because I think you've got powders from sports nutrition and then I think you've got Beck with Huel, which is kind of like a powdered product, which is slightly adjacent to sports nutrition. Um, and, and that's probably a whole sort of discussion in itself, actually. 
Yeah, indeed. Um, just as an aside, Nick, is there any difference between, um, I mean, your, your focus is international. Is there any difference between countries regarding the adoption of plant-based products? Um, great question, by the way. One we've actually uh, taken on a lot. Um, well, let's just start with the simple one is that I think the US has definitely matured or is more of a mature market for plant protein um, and has been for some time. And in fact, for a lot of people, if you were to ask to name, let's say, plant-based DNA-driven brands, they could name probably quite a few, let's say Orgain being one, uh, Vega being another, and 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 so on. Um, so it's a well-established market, great volume, um, um, and actually some acquisitions. In Europe, it's established, it's taking off. Um, a lot more fragmentation to European countries. Um, I wouldn't say that in Europe um, or in UK in general, it's ever pretty well adopted um, and that people are looking to adopt a flexitarian diet or an approach. Um, if you went to Eastern Europe, then I would say quite clearly that um, there's not much take up of plant-based protein beyond people just really pretty much blink it onto dairy and whey. Mm-hmm. Um, and in France and Germany, there's some cultural differences, but there's definitely some adoption in some countries more than others. We found, interestingly, Scandinavia hasn't. I, I will just point out, though, I think there's a really important one in that, um, you know, whether a product screams it's plant protein, we are plant protein powder, we're a plant protein bar, and it's in the naming convention, and how people perceive that. Or again, you could look at brands like Huel, where it's Huel, and that's the product that has a number of characteristics which define it, but it's not a green packaging. Yeah. It doesn't say plant Huel. Um, it's just a fundamental part of it. And I think that's also an important distinction for certain brands that are very successful and maybe others who have decided to scream it as a naming convention. And I think there's some nuances in those type of dynamics, I think, which also contribute to relative success or not in some instances. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, having seen um, one of the, the bottles of a, a Huel shake last night, I think it was a vanilla one, they uh, label it vegan. Um, so that's a good point to come on to Rebecca. I mean, as a producer in this sector, um, the rapid growth that we've discussed so far in this category, presumably this has been reflected in your sales at Shield and uh, new product development. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think not only are we with vegan, plant-based, we, like people really going for Shield, they really buy into Shield because our products are convenient, they're affordable, and they're plant-based, and they're good for the planet. So we really encompass all of those things, and it's not just one of those areas. So People clearly want these kind of foods as part of their diets along with other plant-based options too. And we can see this really by the growth of the category as a whole, like Nick was saying. Um, now, meal replacements are, I guess, one of the more recent trends. What criteria um, define a complete meal replacement and how do you at Huel um, meet these standards, Rebecca? Yeah, um, I mean, I think we're talking about two slightly separate things here so i think it's important that we kind of break them down and and differentiate them first so one is meal replacement and the other is nutritionally complete food so there are industry recognized regulatory requirements to be deemed a a meal replacement so in short these products which you know you typically find them in a clinical setting are used to support weight loss or, or weight maintenance so for example products can't exceed more than 250 calories per meal uh, they should only be used for a certain amount of time. And the, there's lots of other um, caveats to why you would be categorized as a meal replacement, for example. But this isn't really where Shul sits because we're 400 calories per meal and we're not really aimed specifically at weight loss or um, we're used instead as we like to position it as for someone's most inconvenient meals. So when then you've got 
complete food on the other hand um and this sector it really is still in its infancy so there's no real legally defined explanation as to what nutritionally complete food is but we see it as a meal that provides everything that the body needs pro rata for your daily requirements so for example provides all your essential micro and your micronutrients from that you need from that one meal um, Nick, this is a um, question for you regarding the positioning of plant-based in this sector, and you've touched on this a little bit already. It, it's, this isn't just a sports consumer, is it? I mean, how do you do you see plant-based as a conduit, for instance, to a sort of more active lifestyle for consumers? I wouldn't say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, like but I, I think Nick, the way you described it is, um, is is very good. Yeah, I think it is a conduit to to more to more people. Um, I think rightly or wrongly, there's probably, as an industry, we love stereotypes. So dairy and, and whey in particular has always dominated sports nutrition. Rightly or wrongly, people have a perception of, of it's just, you know, sustainability and, and health-based and they'll have a view. And it doesn't seem to transition to more consumers as easily as it perhaps it could or should actually. Um, but plant definitely is perceived to be healthier. Um, in terms of just in generally from consumers, I kind of don't speak to to answer the question yay or nay, but it definitely in the eyes of consumers seems to be a surrogate for being healthier um, and therefore it becomes a, a surrogate to more people. The challenge with going to more people though, Nick, <clears throat> honestly, is that um, it sort of is a lot more people who say they want to do something versus how many people actually do it, if that makes sense. So when you have a smaller niche group of people who define themselves by whatever characteristic it is, then they definitely have a higher propensity to purchase. So if you're more performance orientated, you're really in there. You're in the mixer. You want to buy a product. The more lifestyle you go, you probably say you'd like to, but maybe that's it's a tougher transaction. So plant protein could be a conduit to those people, but it also needs to be very careful that it doesn't sort of fall in between the cracks and it's something that everyone would like to have, but doesn't necessarily have as much of a a reason to buy it. Um, so it needs to definitely the products need to drive the benefits um a little bit harder or create a proposition which is i think what Huel has done and others like it because um we're not just a total Huel loving but sleep exiles on the as on the panel but others like it have done a phenomenal job at redefining a product and made it something that a lot of people actually can justifiably say they need um and there's a, there's a lot to learn and actually in terms of how plant proteins can 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 jump on the success of propositions like Huel. yeah well, it is kind of a loving because uh, Rebecca very kindly accepted this offer. So, um, now right. we're going to move on to uh, nutrition, taste, texture, or nutrition. What's the number one focus for products? And um, Brittany, I'll probably start with you because you work with a lot of different customers. How hard is it achieving all three of those characteristics? Um, that is the holy grail, I would say, of achieving taste, texture, and nutrition. Uh, when we think about uh, leading with pulse protein. Um, I think you have to have that foundation of taste being king, right? Everybody, the, the first thing you experience is how a product tastes. So you need to make sure that that is optimum in order to then move forward on your texture. And so I would almost, um, when we look at ingredients portfolio, where we stand today, we do not have a protein that can achieve, for instance, a PDCAS one at the moment. But that's where you look at blending proteins together and that can help then to enhance taste it can help to enhance the nutrition and i think starting with that um, foundation of the two is important but certainly it, uh, having a product that delivers a smooth experience i think that's probably one of the 
most challenging drawbacks and pulse proteins is ensuring you don't get that gritty mouthfeel, that chalky mouthfeel that could come about with them. Okay, and Rebecca, you must be uh, achieving that at Huel. So how do you do it? Oh, yeah, we try our best. Uh, at Huel, like, we really follow the ethos that we are a nutrition-first company and taste a close second. So one of the reasons why Huel is so popular is because it's super convenient. It's um, And as a nutrition team, in formulating these products, we have to make sure that they meet certain nutritional parameters to allow our consumers to trust in us that we have created helpful products. So we're minimizing the thought process for them and making it even more convenient. So practically speaking, though, sometimes we do have to make small compromises with nutrition in favor of taste and, and texture, just as Brittany is saying, let's as in order to get someone to pick it up off the shelf and to try it and maybe buy it again or to move to a different product, it has to taste good. It has to have a nice texture that we have to make sure that they actually want to enjoy the products that they are consuming. And also off the back of that, I don't think it's simply just taste, texture or nutrition. I think we also have to consider cost, timing, sustainability, which is obviously a huge consideration for us. So it really does have to include all of these considerations. So it's tricky. It's a balancing act. There are lots of different levers that you have to pull, but it's definitely achievable if you, you know, you employ the right people, you get the right ingredients and, and so on and so forth. Um, Carlos and Brittany discussed this in their fantastic presentation. Um, is complete protein or grams of protein more important to fuel and, and why would that be the case? Oh, both. So I think in terms of grammage, like we've got lots and lots of different types of products for different occasions and different consumer needs. So the absolute protein grammage may differ between them. So for example, we have a powder, we call it our black edition powder. It's got 40 grams of protein per serve. A lot of people use it as like a post-exercise meal, whereas we also have a range called hot and savory, which people typically use for like lunch or dinner. It's got lots of like whole grains, uh, freeze-dried vegetable pieces, you reconstitute with water, and that has about 20, 25 grams of protein, depending on the flavor. Um, so people still want a high-protein product, but the focus isn't necessarily just on the protein. Like They also want a higher amount of carbs in this hot and savory uh, product. So the absolute grammage of protein per serve, it, it is important, and it varies across the range depending on how the consumer is using the product. But, you know, Ultimately, as well on the quality side of the question, like all of our products are formulated to be nutritionally complete. And part of that definition for us requires all meal-based products to be at least a source of all essential nutrients. So for example, with protein, it's going to meet the source of claim, but also meet the WHO recommendations for all essential amino acids per day on that daily basis if you look at it as a pro-rata base. And we do that by combining at least two or more sources of plant-based proteins, sometimes three if we're feeling a bit fruity, uh, to ensure kind of overall protein quality, as the guys were talking about in the, in the presentation. And we try where possible as well to send off for PGCast testing. And uh, we just want to make sure that, yeah, it's we touch on both the protein grammage, but also the, the quality. So it really is both. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are the primary sources of protein? I know you mentioned some of the products, um, ingredients that you're using earlier. 
Uh, and how does that quality of these proteins compare to traditional uh, dietary sources? I mean, what are the key um, nutritional components in your in your products? So we incorporate um, a bunch of different proteins into different types of products, depending on what we want the flavor profile to be, what we need to get from that product, what our consumers are actually looking for. The favorites that we typically play for uh, play with are pea, protein, rice, hemp, faba, um, and you know different proteins have got different amino acid profiles and digestibility profiles, and thereby overall quality. So the quality part of that question. It does depend on which protein source that we're comparing against. But as we mentioned, like we ensure that we combine at least two or more sources of plant-based proteins because each of these sources, you know, they've got their own strengths and weaknesses in terms of amino acid composition. And so when they're combined, they can complement each other to provide a more nutritionally well-rounded and complete nutrition profile. So for example, you've got pea protein, relatively low in methionine, um, and then we've got hemp protein that is much higher in this amino acid. And they both bring um, differences in terms of their flavor proteins as well. So it really is a bit of a, a culmination of proteins that we use depending on um, the, the product format. Mm-hmm. Um, Brittany, as an ingredient supplier ingredients, um, what, what types of ingredients are you seeing a demand for from these categories? Um, I think we've seen that foundation really, like Beck was saying, of that pea and faba as the foundation. But now we're seeing more and more proteins um, get heightened, such as chickpea. And that's for a variety of different reasons, whether that's flavor or whether that's color, different depending on the application you're looking for. And then certainly that blend of protein. So you're seeing more and more offerings of that um, combination in order to elevate the uh, complementary proteins. But then, of course, you're seeing uh, innovations in things such as precision fermentation and really what is that next step as we look into the food industry. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebecca, you know, these are sexy products that you guys are offering, but there's a hell of a lot of science that goes behind them. Hey, could you give us any insights into the research and testing behind your products to ensure their, their quality, their nutritional quality? Yeah, I mean, I like that they're being called sexy products. This is great. Um, I mean, every product uh, that we create, we really just consider scientific research at its core, whether that is the technical side, um, quality testing, new product development testing, or nutritional. So I'll tell you a bit from the nutritional side, because that's obviously my bag. So um, I mentioned, obviously, that all of our products meet all RDAs for all essential nutrients, but these RDAs, um, they really do differ by the governance of that region. So say, for example, it's going to be to have different amount of calcium if it's EU versus a US product and that kind of stuff. So they really are, these RDAs are established by lots and lots of different research papers. So it has science right at its core. Another instance is when we bring out a brand new product, my team will conduct a thorough research review about the type of ingredient that we want to include, the form, the inclusion dosage health benefits and sometimes we literally do go down a list of what marketing say oh these are all great ingredients that are out in the market what do you guys think is going to be interesting to include other these products we make sure that we take a full deep dive into every single one of those and we will go back to the team and we will explain kind of what we found how we can actually talk about that ingredient to our consumers as well and 
we also do comes up during research each year. So sometimes internal, sometimes external. So we actually had a first peer review last year, which looked at the to consuming fuel on micronutrient status and different markers of health through a four-week period. And this you did help us translate the message to consumers that fuel can be considered a helpful alternative dish meals. So as we mentioned, like we're going to do a whole bunch more research, which is a little bit easier when you get to be a, a bigger company and you get deeper pockets to do these kind of things. Um, but yeah, it really is our, our core as a nutrition first company. <laughs> um, we've got loads of questions coming in, so I'm going to get a few of those in now. Laura Munoz has asked, have you explored upcycled proteins in your products? If yes, what has been the reaction from consumers to the idea of upcycling? I guess that's a question first of all to Rebecca, but um, I'm sure Brittany and um, Nick can also um, add something to that. Yeah, I mean, we have, but there's nothing that's really been um, fully included at this stage. It's something that we consider, sure, we have these blue sky meetings that we will always have simmering in the background and we talk not just about kind of upcycle proteins, also um, novel proteins that are emerging into the industry which are really cool they're really exciting um but we also have to consider things like i spoke about before of do those products do those ingredients and and proteins have enough volume to supply us um are they going to have the right sustainability credentials are they going to be the right cost so one of the things that you that we're um that we make sure that we can create kind of affordable food as well and sometimes when you get a new ingredient or you get um certain novel proteins for example they can be very very expensive and we would have to pop some of that cost onto the consumer in order for it to be included and so we haven't at the moment um but it's definitely something that we kind of keep bubbling in the background mm -hmm. nick if you had anything to answer that upcycled ingredients yeah. I mean, two very good, quick points. I think the first one is just as a principle or as a concept, I think it is, it's a good thing in terms of, I think, I think consumers are looking for, you know, real good authenticity to various ups, uh, sustainability initiatives. And I think upcycling and, and how that um, uh, can, can help the market is probably quite a good one in, in principle. I don't think we see it too often in terms of the products we track yet. Um, but I will just say, having been at Expo West, which is sort of the big, um, sort of uh, consumer-based show um, in Anaheim in March it was actually quite a bit of a trend, particularly there's a tick mark that's been launched for upcycled ingredients, um, which has been um, which is being positioned by brands, so i.e. their communication to consumers. Um, and interestingly, some ingredient suppliers are are picking up at whatever the um, criteria is to be able to say you're an upcycled ingredient. So um, more so just the directional for everyone listening that there is. There is some initiatives or kite marks around trying to set criteria about that to at least create create some sort of um, finishings, which I think actually in general is important for sustainability, by the way, um, just so everyone's kind of on a level playing field, but um, in terms of what, what people should be saying. <laughs> um, Joe Humphreys has asked a good question, uh, and it's good because it's one of the questions that I had anyway as part of our next um, phase. Um, now, there are a lot of challenges facing the food industry when it comes to developing nutrition-focused plant-based products. Now, we can't escape the ultra-processed um, food debates in that. Um, so what do you say to those people who suggest that plant-based foods are over-processed, potentially leading to the consumption of 
uh, highly processed and less nutritious foods. Um, Brittany? Yes, absolutely. A great question. Um, so we see these um, concerns really focused in on the alternative meat industry. And um, one of the solutions that Ingredient has is actually um, our pulse flours. So when you think about pulse flours, they're actually milled just the same way as a wheat flour would be milled. And that is the process that they go through. That So that is a, a wonderful ingredient to work with in a variety of different applications that has uh, follows a process that has been followed for hundreds of years um, and can be leveraged in a variety of different products. So um, as we see growing concerns, there's an opportunity to work with the team in order to um, leverage these flowers. Certainly, um, they cannot deliver everything that you need um, because then if you're looking to enhance your protein content, these pulse flowers typically come at 10 to 20% protein. And so you need to really work to understand your formulation and what their needs are in order to meet all of the um, the needs of both your product and the consumer. Mm -hmm. This is, must be something that you hear um, a lot, probably a common discussion for you. Yeah, no, no, it is. I mean, I think um, the last point is really important, by the way, for Brittany, about just making sure people know what it is they're looking to innovate for who and for what reason, and therefore find the right sort of ingredient solutions. And just in terms of the the sort of processing piece, um, uh, and I think, you know, for some time we've called out, as has many others, just the importance of, say, naturalness. Now, I'll always put that in, in sort of inverted commas and, and sort of say that's in the eye of the beholder in terms of what they perceive by that. But in general, consumers are looking for things that are more natural. I think actually, by the, by the way, they'll accept engineered naturalness. I don't think they expect things to just come directly from the ground. Um, but I think there'll be a case of, as ever, there'll be a sort of a, a media merry-go-round about how people interpret processing, how much processing and so on. So I, I think to some degree, it's not new to plant. It will be new to any other ingredient. Um, I just think eventually the rice answer and communication will come to the fore because that, that will be the truth, I suppose. And um, I just think in general, from a consumer and from a product point of view, they'll want products to be as natural as they possibly can. And that's in, that is absolutely a key trend for all products in most of the categories that we're involved in. Um, and I don't see that subsiding over the next few years. So um, I think that's probably an important um, enabler for plant protein in general. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, is that something that you hear at Huel at all? Do you try and keep your ingredients list quite small or is it it's just difficult to achieve, I guess, for the nutrition product? Yeah, it is. And, you know, we're seeing a lot about the ultra-processed food discussion and the influence on consumer perception whereby any process is believed to be bad. And many of the ingredients that we're discussing um, today, obviously, a lot of plant-based proteins fall into this ultra-processed food category, um, as does sure, uh, because you know to get the end product, you have to extract the the protein with a certain degree of processing to provide the amino acids that you need. And I guess actually maybe it'd be useful if I backtrack a little bit and just explain the new ultra-processing food categorization system um, by Nova. It's a new label intended to cross-categorize foods that have undergone a certain degree of processing. There's this kind of four different groups. And it was intended really to capture foods that are typically bad for you, that have undergone an awful lot of um, 
or processing practices, uh, for example, using artificial dyes, preservatives are often found in poor quality junk food. So I think in this instance, the categorization is doing a good job because it's actually highlighting to consumers that these type of processes can lead to poor quality or not as helpful food. But it's really important to note that the ultra-processed food categorization, it, it doesn't consider the nutritional value of foods, rather it focuses on the kind of degree of processing and it presumes that the more processing, um, the worse it is for you, which we're kind of struggling to have this conversation at Shul, um, because it really is, it's an oversimplification. I think we have um, the idea of it, Shul. So the healthfulness of the foods, like it's absolutely nuanced and the Nova system, I don't think has done a good job of highlighting certain processing practices that actually result in better foods. So a lot of frozen foods, tinned um, vegetables, which actually preserve nutrients, reduce waste, fall into this ultra-processed food category and consumer perception that, yeah, any degree of processing is unhealthy and thereby should be avoided. So arguably plant proteins in the way that they're commonly incorporated into products sometimes can be seen as bad. So, you know, I think the current system, the current classification, I guess, it's it's not suitable in the way that it is um, to make widespread public health recommendations. Um, but on the back of that, I do think it's worth noting that there's been a lot of pushback from kind of leading dietitians, nutritionists, etc. And they'll hopefully fingers crossed, be some revisions around this categorization. Um, and, you know, that's going to happen through collaborations between like academics, um, industry professionals, policymakers, consumers, all that kind of thing. And that's, you know, that's what we're trying to voice at the moment at Shul is really how do we explain this to in our consumers Um and trying just to compete against those big news articles that say, well, if it's not processed food, it's awful. Yeah. Um, it was a good link, actually, to uh, collaboration. I mean, where do we see opportunities um, to progress the food industry faster through collaboration? Um, I know talking before uh, we came on air with Nick that uh, he sees microbes um, that might be more favorable from a sustainability perspective. There are companies out there producing casein identical um, ingredients. So, Nick... Where do you see opportunities for collaboration? Um, uh, I mean, everyone, I mean, realistically, everyone needs to collaborate, you know, from um, whether it's combination of whatever it takes to make products taste better, actually, or uh, to become less processed, whatever that really means and so on. Um, collaborations right now in terms of technology. Um, so whether people are going to look to AI derived techniques to, to, to look for new benefits, whether it's um, technology partners for the purposes of precision fermentation because that's not in everyone's wheelhouse um it's it's in terms of capabilities etc so i think they're really good examples of the way industry will need to work together um inevitably for things to be cost effective or to be scalable commercially that's going to need a lot of people working together in that sense too and, and i think i would that beck used a lot because inherent to inclusivity and accessibility is the affordability piece um uh, I think inevitably, if you're going to have great tasting products which are affordable, but also as nutritious as possible, I don't see how you do that 
um, as an N of one. Um, so to some extent, I think common sense prevails. But that's easy to say on a B2B platform. I think um, communicating that to uh, consumers is not it's not always the easiest thing. But um, um, as an industry, we're all going to have to be friends, actually, to be honest. Um, uh, so I, I think that's an exciting thing, by the way. <laughs> I mean, Brittany, Ingredient, by your very nature, you're a supplier to the sector. Collaboration is the name of the game for you guys. Um, so where, where are you seeing some opportunities in that uh, respect? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Ingredion constantly looks for opportunities to collaborate. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, we're looking for that continuous feedback loop of really what is the consumer asking for to drive our innovation or our ingredient innovation. But then certainly the collaboration within companies. Um, so for instance, Ingredion is a member of MISTA, um, which is a ecosystem in San Francisco in which a variety of both um, B2B in uh, suppliers, but also um, CPG companies collaborate in order to drive innovation forward from somebody like a small startup all the way to a large um, global organization. So these types of ecosystems, I think, are incredibly important in order to drive innovation forward. Mm-hmm. Um, now, no discussion about plant-based proteins can go without mentioning the topic of sustainability. Um, so Nick, are plant-based and sustainability inherently linked? It depends. I suppose it depends uh, through what lens. Uh, for me, I'm a, I'm a product and a consumer person, so I would say um, I would say they are. Yeah, I think people kind of use them interchangeably, rightly or wrongly. Um, so I think there'll be a technical answer to that, and I'll let someone else answer that. From a product and a um, consumer point of view, I, I think people see them interchangeably, and, and they see one as being linked to the other. Um, so in that sense, that can be a positive um, in terms of sort of two sort of macro things, helping people feel like there's a lot of positivity about certain types of products. Um, but similarly, if, if, if one of those angles is, is hit at for whatever reason, then, um, it'll be, it'll be a tougher ride to take, but, um, so is yes. Um, I do have a personal opinion, but it's okay to say that I think I'm from a plant-based protein point of view and a sustainability, it needs to probably communicate sustainability a little bit better rather than being sustainable because it's not dairy, if that makes sense. Um, so I think there's, um, I think some important communication tools and I think that's key just in general across sustainability, honestly, is the communication of that and some sense of, um, uh, consensus, but that's obviously still, still some, uh, some time away actually. Um, but I think if we all agree that we want to be more sustainable, then that's another great example of collaboration. Um, before we wrap, and maybe we've got a little time for another question, um, from the audience, um, Rebecca. Uh, is, could you provide any information on sustainability and sourcing of your ingredients at Huel? Yeah, so um, we're a B Corp company now, which is very exciting. Um, so we've got our own social and environmental impacts um, at the top of our agenda. So we're increasingly looking at ESG credentials, so environmental, social, and governance um, of all of our suppliers across the supply chain in areas like ingredients, packaging, manufacturing. So for example, uh, environmental impact, looking at our suppliers, water use, energy use, uh, waste management or social, looking at how they treat their employees. Um, are they inclusive? Are they diverse? Um, one recent example of this actually is that we formed an open chain partnership with Tony's Chocoloni sourcing cocoa, helping us collectively to source more ethical cocoa, which is a, which is really cool. We're really excited by it. Um, and our sustainability director, um, 
wonderful woman, uh, Jess Anderson. So she actually works incredibly closely with our procurement and our technical teams to ensure that all of our suppliers have uh, particular standards that they follow and stick to and that we audit um, them as well. So obviously this is all still work in progress. I wish I have to get better and set kind of annual goals for improvement. But yeah, it's very much um, top of our agenda. Right, we're gonna we're gonna run out of time unless somebody wants us to add something to that. Can I just quickly say, Nick, because it's yeah, important on ability is um, we've done quite a little bit of work. I mean, we looked at four thousand brands, and only sixteen percent of those brands within sort of an active nutrition space had a sort of a corporate social responsibility page or a page dedicated on their website towards sustainability. So not nearly as many as people think. Um, from a bars and powders point of view, the number of bars or powders products claiming sustainability. Is, is honestly super, super in the minority. So um, I think there's a lot of talk about sustainability, which is really, really positive, but I don't think anyone should leave this call under any illusions that there's just a long way to go. So whatever is some barriers within that, collectively there needs to be a lot of work to be done because it's not quite filtering through on products. Um, so in this sense, you know, Becky, you all are in the minority um, in terms of uh, their commitment to sustainability. It's not nearly as many actually materializing in tangible sort of claims on products for consumers yet. Um, and, and I think that that just, you know, it's an, it's an important area for, for everyone to, to really grasp that it's great that we talk about it, but there still needs to be a lot of action. So that's okay to finish on, say. Yeah, well, that seems to be the case across many industries. Um, right, so wrap up, uh, a wrap-up question now. Brittany, I'll start with you. How might the um, future health and wellness trends shape the demand for plant-based proteins in the coming years and what potential challenges or opportunities lie ahead for do you think? Um, that's a great question. I would say really we have to, from a foundation, feed the planet, right? And so how we are going to do that in a sustainable way from both a sustainable to the environment, but also sustainable to, to the people. That is something that needs to be achieved through collaboration. So just bringing it all together around starting with those challenges I highlighted in my presentation to finishing with the collaboration, both from B2B, but also B2C, it will be incredibly important. Nick? Um, the simple answer to that is plants are not going to suffer from macro tailwinds, helping it be more relevant to more people over time, right? That's not going anywhere. I don't, I don't see any roadblock in the way. Um, what plant protein needs to do is to have sufficient volume available, needs to be, uh, priced at the right price for for people to be able to use it and, and maximize its full potential products and and actually crucially more than anything taste um there's been huge developments in that area it doesn't taste bad but in comparison to other things it doesn't entirely meet uh the benchmark of other comparisons and taste is going to be the biggest uh, enabler to it reaching its potential unquestionably yeah and we see that across other sectors of food as well so becky final word to you opportunities and challenges ahead yeah to be honest i think it's i had um really yeah taste volume price so everything that nick has just covered my mind particularly went towards like novel foods um and everything that is intertwined there like speed of novel food approval like etc etc but yeah it really does come down to those three key things is to is to how um how this area is going to grow and where those opportunities are Okay, that's all we have time for today before somebody pulls the plug on us. Um, we hope you have enjoyed today's broadcast. 
Um, join us next month on the 29th of November for our next instalment. That is automating production for novel foods. And I know we have a cracking lineup for that with experts from Meatable, The Cultivated Bee, Hamilton, Solaris, and Umiyami. Um, if you didn't get a chance or I didn't get a chance to ask your question today, I'm sure our panelists won't mind you reaching out to them on LinkedIn uh, and they'll get back to you directly. And finally, don't forget our magazine, Protein Production Technology International. The October-November 2023 edition is out now. And once again, it's packed full of some thought-provoking articles, including cell lines and growth media, alternative fats, all proteins in the pet food industry. And there's an interview with Good Meats' Josh Tetrick as well. And Michael, uh, Michael Natale from Ingredient. He's also in that issue discussing today's topic. Um, we hope you enjoy reading it as much as, much as we enjoy, enjoy producing it. Um, if you want to be featured in any of the four issues next year, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, thank you for joining us. Until next time, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.